Good morning, everyone, and welcome back to our online ministry at Grace Baptist Church. When our church building is open, we love helping newcomers get connected. So if you've been visiting with us virtually, it'd be great to hear from you in the comments below. People are celebrating the reopening of golf courses yesterday, but we're still waiting on news of the lifting of restrictions on churches. In the meantime, I'm glad that you're listening in today because we have an amazing passage that I'm excited to look at with you. Now this week, I read of a Belgian woman who was driving to pick up a friend in Brussels. It's about 150 kilometers away. But the trip seemed to take a lot longer and the route that her GPS directed her on was unexpected. She stopped several times to get gas and she was so tired from the trip that she napped a number of times along the way. She saw all kinds of signs, first in French, then in German, and finally in Croatian. <laughs> but it was when she reached the capital of Zagreb, and the capital of Croatia, that she realized she had to turn around. By that point, she was more than 1,500 kilometers from home. An unquestioned reliance on a faulty GPS turned out to be her downfall. And as I heard her story, it made me wonder, why didn't she turn around sooner? Why didn't she question her GPS? Why didn't the signs help her realize she was on the wrong path? And as I thought of her, I thought of the many times that I've veered off course spiritually. I thought of people I know who have made a series of dangerous choices and they seem to be just as oblivious to the warning signs. Today's passage looks at some of the reasons that we veer off course. It looks at what went wrong in people's faith that led them to reject Jesus when he came. But it also gives us a window into the many ways that we get off track in our thinking and what keeps us from turning around. If you don't have one already at this point, I'd encourage you to pause the video, get a Bible, and turn with me to John's Gospel, at chapter 9, verse 13. I'm going to read down to verse 34. John's Gospel, chapter 9, verses 13 to 34. They brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. Now it was a Sabbath day when Jesus made the mud and opened his eyes. So the Pharisees again asked him how he had received his sight. And he said to them, He put mud on my eyes, and I washed, and I see. Some of the Pharisees said, This man is not from God, for he does not keep the Sabbath. But others said, How can a man who is a sinner do such signs? And there was a division among them. So they said again to the blind man, What do you say about him, since he has opened your eyes? He said, He's a prophet. The Jews did not believe that he had been blind and had received his sight until they called the parents of the man who had received his sight and asked them, Is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? His parents answered, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees we do not know, nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. For the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, 
he was to be put out of the synagogue. Therefore, his parents said, he's of age, ask him. So for the second time, they called the man who had been blind and said to him, give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. He answered, whether he is a sinner, I do not know. One thing I do know, that though I was blind, now I see. They said to him, what did he do to you? How did he open your eyes? He answered them, I have told you already, and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? And they reviled him, saying, You are his disciple, but we are disciples of Moses. We know that God has spoken to Moses, but as for this man, we don't know where he comes from. The man answered, Why, this is amazing, an amazing thing. You do not know where he comes from, and yet he opened my eyes. We know that God doesn't listen to sinners, but if anyone is a worshiper of God and does his will, God listens to him. Never since the world began has it been heard that anyone opened the eyes of a man born blind. If this man were not from God, he could do nothing. They answered him, you were born in utter sin. Would you teach us? And they cast him out. This is the word of God. It's a disturbing picture of how people veer off course. And it's all the more disturbing because we can see ourselves in their actions. The first thing it teaches me is that we veer off course when we're blinded by our assumptions. Like the Belgian woman who was convinced her GPS couldn't be wrong. When we refuse to consider that we might be wrong, we wander down dangerous paths. We veer off course when we're blinded by our assumptions. Now we saw last week how Jesus had healed a man who had been born blind. It was an incredible miracle. And it was so remarkable that it left the neighbors feeling a little confused. In, in verse 13, it says, they brought to the Pharisees the man who had formerly been blind. They're looking to the most spiritual people they know and asking, what do they make of it? And naturally, the Pharisees want to know how it happened. But as soon as the healed man lays out the de details, they've already made up their minds. In verse 16, uh, they respond to him and they say, this man is not from God for he does not keep the Sabbath. You see, they've been confronted with an unmistakable miracle. It's the most powerful demonstration of healing that they've ever witnessed. But because it doesn't match their assumptions of how God works, they dismiss the evidence and reject it outright. Now, we're not entirely unsympathetic. If you read the Bible, you know that the Sabbath was an important part of the Old Covenant. God wanted people to rest on the seventh day and to worship him. But many Jews in the first century failed to distinguish between the perfect law of God and the imperfect rules that people built on it. So for instance, they interpreted the command to rest to mean you could prevent someone from dying, but you couldn't do anything to actually make them better. That wasn't spelled out in the Old Testament, but once someone had decided that was the rule, no one dared question it. Now, anyone familiar with Orthodox Judaism today knows that Sabbath rules and workarounds have only grown. So for instance, you can get a Shabbat phone that allows you to make calls without completing a circuit. 
and thus not breaking the rule against completing things. Shabbat elevators are programmed to stop on every floor during the Sabbath in order to avoid the need for anyone to push the buttons, which is deemed as work. And even the door switch is taped down in many Orthodox Jewish refrigerators so that the light never comes on during the Sabbath, and, and so that the rule about kindling of or extinguishing of fire is never broken. Now, if you're not familiar with those rules, probably seems hard to believe. But it's just as easy for any of us to follow our traditions unexamined as well. How many of the customs that have been passed down to you have you re-examined in light of the scriptures? How many of your values or beliefs or habits have you evaluated against the Bible? How often do you find yourself thinking, maybe I'm wrong, I should investigate that? Or how often do you dismiss something because you're a Methodist or a Catholic or a Baptist or a Presbyterian? Maybe your GPS is wrong. If you put your traditions and assumptions on a par with the Bible, you'll find yourself rejecting Jesus and what God wants to do in your life the way the Pharisees did. That's how you end up in Croatia. If you want to go to Croatia, that's a great place to go. But if you're aiming for Brussels and you end up in Croatia, that's a problem. We veer off course when we're blinded by our assumptions. We also veer off course when we're afraid of the group. When we make our goal people's acceptance or to make people like us, we can end up justifying decisions we'd never ordinarily make. We veer off course when we're afraid of the group. Now, an interesting development takes place after the Pharisees' inter interrogation of the healed man reaches a standstill. In verse 18, they call in the, uh, the, the man's parents and their questions take a hostile tone. It says that they did not, uh, they did not believe, they, they did not believe that he had been born blind and received his sight. And so in verse 19, they begin to ask those questions. They say, is this your son who you say was born blind? How then does he now see? See, they're challenging the claim that he was actually blind or that it was actually their son. And they want them to know, they want them to explain, I guess, how he's now able to see. It's like they refuse to believe the possibility of a miracle and they're demanding the, the parents provide an alternate explanation. Now, if you've ever faced an attack from people who disagree with you like that, you know how intimidating it can be. Even still, their response is surprising. In verse 20, they, they respond and they say, We know that this is our son and that he was born blind, but how he now sees, we do not know. Nor do we know who opened his eyes. Ask him, he's of age, he'll speak for himself. This is what's known as throwing someone under the bus. They know that the religious leaders want to shut this story down, and they're going to discredit anyone who gets in their way. So the parents pass the buck to their son. Part of me gets their desire to avoid trouble, but the fact that they put it back on their son just seems inexcusable because they've seen how much he went through with his blindness. 
They know how he was forced to beg every day just to survive. His healing should be their greatest joy and celebration as parents. But they're not prepared to cross the authorities, even for their son. And verse 22 explains the reason. It says, His parents said these things because they feared the Jews. Now the Jews here is John's shorthand for referring to the Jewish religious leaders. They feared their disapproval. They feared their rejection. They feared being cut off, left out, and no longer accepted by them. And the rest of verse 22 goes on to say that the Jews had already agreed that if anyone should confess Jesus to be Christ, he was to be put out of the synagogue. So the threat was real. But there are worse things than the disapproval of the group. I think they would have gone home with a load of regret for having betrayed their values. They would feel the shame of having acted cowardly. And they'd know in their hearts that it was ultimately a betrayal of God. Now in John 12, it shows that the battle with fear that the blind man parents felt was, was widespread. They weren't the only ones to feel, feel that way. In verse 42, it says that many, even of the authorities, believed in him. But it adds, but for fear of the Pharisees, they did not confess it so that they would not be put out of the synagogue. Now, I've talked to people who've said to me, if Jesus was the Messiah and Christianity was true, then the religious leaders in the first century would have embraced him. That would be true if people made decisions purely based on information. But that's almost never the case. There's always a calculation of what it will cost me, what I might lose. For many who are confronted with Jesus' power, they realized following him might impact their status. They might lose their place in the community. It might cost them professionally. They might lose some relationships. And as they considered that calculation, the verse tells us what ultimately kept them from responding to the truth. John 12, 43, it says, For they love the glory that comes from man more than the glory that comes from God. They cared more about what people thought than about what God thought. They wanted their approval more than his approval. And this is so often where we veer off course. Fear begins to dictate what we say and what we won't say. Fear controls the limits of our obedience to God. Fear will make us withdraw from people or situations that make us uncomfortable. And our connection to God becomes ruled by our devotion to people. Before we know it, we're 1,500 kilometers from Brussels and all the signs are in Croatian. And we're wondering why. We veer off course when we're blinded by our assumptions. We veer off course when we're afraid of the group. And finally, we veer off course when we talk without listening. When we stop listening to people who disagree with us and become convinced we're the only ones with the right perspective, that's when we end up in a place called stupid. We veer off course when we talk without listening. Now to start with, the religious leaders questioned the man about his supposed healing. When he wouldn't deny it and instead concluded that Jesus was a prophet, they questioned his parents and tried to get evidence from him to refute them. 
When, they couldn't, when the parents couldn't help their cause, they called the formerly blind man again. And in verse 24, they say to him, Give glory to God. We know that this man is a sinner. Now when they say, give glory to God, they're not asking him to sing Amazing Grace. They're demanding that he make a formal confession. It's like he's in a court of law and they're telling him to tell the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. But then they add, we know that this man is a sinner. They, they've already arrived at their verdict. Some questions aren't looking for answers. We can be too proud to actually imagine that someone else has a better perspective than we do. And when we do, most of our conversations turn into monologues. We ask questions, but we're really just looking for agreement. Instead of talking to people, we just talk at people. And as people around us sense that this is what's happening, they often stop playing along. That's what the man who had been blind did. When they ask him for the fourth time how he had been healed, and it's clear that their questions really aren't questions, he calls them on it. He responds to them in verse 27. I have told you already and you would not listen. Why do you want to hear it again? Do you also want to become his disciples? Let's face it. It's usually so much more convenient when people just agree with us. A totally different perspective usually means more discussion, more delay, and probably a different outcome. A different outcome than we were hoping for. But the alternative is that we just listen to the sound of our own voice. We see the road signs telling us to turn around, but we stop reading them. At Proverbs chapter 18, verse 2, says this, A fool takes no... Uh, takes no pleasure in understanding, but only in expressing his opinion. This is a huge warning for us in the age of social media. Because never before has there been a generation that has read so little and expressed so much. We don't care what experts have to say anymore. We don't care what journalists have to say anymore. We don't care what anyone has to say anymore. We just want to get our opinions out. This is life in the internet age. Now, how often do you get into con a conversation about something that's important to you and think, I probably don't see the whole picture. Or, I might be wrong. The other person probably has something important to teach me. If your favorite conversations are monologues, you're an accident waiting to happen. That's how the religious authorities in Jesus' day ended up killing the one who came to save them. And it's what keeps people from hearing God's message from the Bible today. Now, when the Pharisees couldn't get the man to agree with them, they do what people who prefer the sound of their own voice often do. They discredit him. They unfriend him. When you get down to verse 34, they say, you were born in utter sin, and would you teach us? And with that, they do to him what his parents feared they'd do to them. They kick him out of the synagogue. He's no longer welcome there anymore. Now, I think we live in a particularly dangerous time for this. 
It used to be everyone watched the same newscast, read the same one or two newspapers. We were forced to hear opinions that disagreed with us, and there were rules around us for what was worth reporting. Now we can find a group of people on the internet to agree with almost any idea we come up with, and the consequences can be devastating. Tom Torrance is a perfect example. Growing up in Mobile, Alabama, he surrounded himself with people who shared his evil thoughts about white supremacy. He went to church, but avoided any reading or teaching that didn't support his views. Even as he began to commit terrible acts of hatred and terrorism, he assumed he was a Christian and carrying out the work of God. Finally, at age 21, he was arrested in a shootout with police and FBI and sentenced to 30 years in a federal penitentiary for attempting to bomb a Jewish home with 29 sticks of dynamite. With nothing to do in his tiny cell except think and read, he began to get outside of the bubble of his extremist ideology and read and interact with people who disagreed with him. And he began to really listen to the Bible for the first time. Eventually, it was the words of Matthew 16:26 that really cut to his heart. Those are those words where Jesus says, For what will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? As those words sunk in, he knelt on the floor of his cell and asked Jesus to forgive him. And as he did, he experienced genuine conversion. He continued to read and he knew he wasn't just called to leave his hatred, but to embrace people of all backgrounds with love. He went on to seminary. He became a pastor. He co-wrote a book with an African-American evangelical leader entitled, He's My Brother. And eventually he became the president of the C.S. Lewis Institute. His story shows how our lives can get off course when we stop listening to anyone who doesn't agree with us. But it also gives me hope that no matter how far off course we veer, if we're willing to truly listen to God's word and give our lives to Jesus Christ, he can get us on the right track. Now, I don't know if you're blinded by your assumptions and traditions, or if you're making decisions rooted in the fear of people and your desire for their acceptance. I don't know whether you talk far more than you listen, but I do know those paths will lead us off course. And I know that the word of God and the grace of Jesus Christ are what can lead us back on track. So let's look to God in prayer. Heavenly Father, we recognize that in all of our lives, we face those times when we are slow to listen and quick to speak. We want to make our opinions heard because we think that our opinions are the most important ones. We know that in all of our lives, we give in to fear. We respond to the people around us and we give our attention to them far more than we give our attention to you. But it's your opinion that supremely matters. 
And Father, we, we also confess that so, so often our assumptions and our traditions can get in the way. They get in the way of us really hearing, really responding to you and trusting and following you. So wherever we are, Father, I pray that you would help us to look to you, to look to your word as that perfect path, to look to Jesus as our perfect Savior, the power of God unto salvation. And in him, may we have life. May we find that path back to you. And may we know in him the wonder of your acceptance and forgiveness and love. For we ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, I hope that today's message can help you avoid veering off course and point you to the Savior who helps us get back on track. If you'd like me to pray for you, send me an email or leave a comment below. And if you know someone who'd be encouraged by this message, share it with them and be a channel of God's grace in their life. For more messages of hope, visit www.gracebc.ca. God bless and see you next time.